This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. My favorite genre of audiobooks has to be historical fiction. Add a strong, independent heroine and an intriguing setting, and I'm sold. It's no wonder then that I'm so excited to recommend that you listen to Hotel Laguna by Nicola Harrison and narrated by Carlotta Brenton. The main character, Hazel, leaves Kansas in 1942 and becomes a real-life Rosie the Riveter building bombers, then finds herself dismissed after the war and looking for a way to remain independent in the sun-soaked landscape of Laguna Beach. If you were a fan of Nicola Harrison's first novel, Montauk, you'll love how Hotel Laguna transports you to this bohemian town and the art community there. Start listening to Hotel Laguna by Nicola Harrison now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Papinski. And on this episode, I'm chatting with author Laura Spence-Ash about Beyond That, The Sea, which tells the story of two families living through World War II on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean and the shy, irresistible young woman who will call them both her own. Laura Spence-Ash's fiction has appeared in One Story, New England Review, Crazy Horse, and elsewhere. Her critical essays and book reviews appear regularly in the Plowshares blog. She received her MFA in fiction from Rutgers Newark and lives in New Jersey. Laura, congratulations on Beyond That the Sea, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having you. It's always such a pleasure to, to talk about books and reading and writing. Yes. Well, I mentioned before we start started recording, I listened to Beyond That the Sea on audio and was just completely swept away by these characters and the story. The narration is amazing. I um, am so sad that I'm done with it. It was the best company for a couple of weeks, just like hitting play every time I had a chance. And I know that listeners are really going to want to pick this one up. The book or the audio book is just... I, I can't stop thinking about these characters. They felt so real to me. I cried at the end. I just, you know, it's one of my favorite books I've read lately. I was just so um, just riveted. So I'm really excited to get to hear more about it. That's great. I thought the narration was just wonderful. Elle Potter is just a wonderful narrator. And she had actually narrated, uh, they had narrated um, Hamnet, which I listened to during the pandemic. And it was such oh. a, a thing that I wanted to return to each night. It was like returning to this other world with, with their voice telling that story. And so when I had the option to use them for this narration, I jumped at the chance. <laughs> oh, that's great. And that is how it felt too, like just getting to kind of revisit this world. So for anyone who hasn't gotten to pick the book up yet, can you tell us a little bit more about Beyond That the Sea and sort of the the time span we're in, the characters we meet? Sure. So it's the story of two families whose lives become intertwined when Beatrix, the 11-year-old daughter of a British family, is sent to live with an American family at the start of the Blitz in 1940. She lives with that family south of Boston for five years. So when she's 11 to when she's 16, then the war ends and she very quickly is sent home. Um, The novel then follows both families for the next 30 years as their lives come together and move apart. But it does so um, not continuously. We're with them for the five years of the war, 40 to 45. Then we see just two of the characters over a few days in 1951 and then again, with there's another five-year period from 1960 to 1965, where we revisit all the characters again. And then there's an epilogue in 1977. 
Um, so it's structured perhaps a little differently um, than other novels that span a long period of time. But I, I really enjoyed, I knew I wanted to be with them during the war. And then I also wanted to see where they were 20 years down the road. And so this enabled me to do that. Yeah, I um, loved, so- oh, I was just going to say, I, I loved that you set it up that way and were able to follow them for so long. I think that's why, part of why I become so attached to them all. But I think so often books set during World War II, it's either World War II and then maybe like really far in the future or like someone finding out about their grandparents or something, but to follow them for so long and how all these experiences really impact their lives and each different members of the family. I just thought it was just such a great reading experience and so many narrators too, which I would love to hear about like and. And was this just daunting to take on? It's, um, it's, it, you pull it off so well, but I'm sure it was just felt very ambitious at the start. Yeah, so, I mean, it's been in the works for quite a long time. <laughs> um, originally, I just had B, the, the girl who sent away, as the narrator. And for a long time, I knew that I wanted to move over about 30 years. So almost think of it as a three-act play with the 40s and then the 50s and the 60s. But it didn't quite work with B as a narrator. And then I tried to have B narrate the section in the 40s. And then the the two boys who then turn into men who she lives with in America, William and Gerald, each narrate. So William narrate the 50s and Gerald narrate the 60s. But that didn't really work either. And um, I was increasingly getting interested in the perspectives of both sets of parents, how it felt to to be a parent, to make this impossible choice to send your child across an ocean alone. Um, and then also what it felt like on the other side, what does it feel like to change your family by bringing somebody else into it? Um, so that, that sort of all came together. And I decided that I wanted to have the points of view of everyone in both families, that it was really a novel about two families more than anything else. Um, but I also knew that I wanted to cover this large span of time. And so it was sort of a math problem. <laughs> like I yeah. had to figure out how I was going to do all those things. And one way to do that was to write in these very short chapters um, so that I was, we were able to see the point of view of all eight characters, but we could also move, move through a, a large swath of time. Well, and it's just ripe for the whole premise is just ripe for, conflict and such interesting choices they all have to make and the way all of their relationships are intertwined is so fascinating and getting to see the relationships from the all these different people's perspectives and they all have kind of misunderstandings or different views on things it was just so fascinating and I wondered because it's sort of interesting that this is a time where there seems to be a lot of interest in the air for writers about these children that were evacuated during World War II, but each book is taking it on in such different perspectives. There's the uh, secret book of Flora Lee and the lost English girl and and both of those, I interviewed those authors, but um, you take it on in such a different way. And I wondered, was there something you read or kind of heard about that initially piqued your interest to sort of the experiences of these kids? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, in 1998, which amazingly is 25 years ago, uh, <laughs> I read an article in the New York Times about a group of older British adults who came back to see where they had lived during the war. And I had no idea that children were sent so far afield. I knew, of course, that many, many children were sent to the country. Um, but I was just fascinated. And I wasn't writing at the time, but I, I couldn't stop thinking about this. And my children were young then, they were one and five. And I could not imagine making that impossible choice um, to send them away alone across an ocean. Um, and so I started reading what I could about it and finding out more about it. It turns out that something around 14 to 15,000 children were sent um out of the country, um, to the States, to Canada, but also amazingly to India, to Australia. Um, and it was when, though, I read a memoir by a man who had been sent with his brother to a town south of Boston, that all of a sudden a book started to appear in my head. And that was because he was sent to the same town where I went to high school. Mm-hmm. And I was there as a boarding school student. Um, he was there as a day student. He was living with a family in the town and going, but we went to the same school and that it all of a sudden I had a setting. Like I knew what this place looked like. I knew what it felt like. And I also knew what it felt like to be there and be far from one's family. I mean, obviously my situation was extremely different, but, but I knew that I knew a little bit of some, something of how that would feel. And I also knew how quickly it became a second home. So once I had that, and it was really the setting, then kind of everything else blossomed out of that. Um, but Can I that ask was a question really- about that too? Because sure. being in the Massachusetts area, I kept changing my mind of like what town I thought it was, because you don't really say. Right. I'm just curious what you're picturing in, in your mind as a local person. <laughs> yeah, so it was Milton. Milton. Oh, it was Milton. Okay. Yeah. That was so interesting. Well, and I have to say with all the settings, I was like, oh, this doesn't get any better. You've got like the Boston area, you've got Maine, you have England. I'm such a like fan of all things British. So it was so fun to have all these settings. Did you have the, the like the Maine idea too, that you were going to kind of have these three locations? You know, I can't quite remember how Maine developed. I love Maine. I have not spent a huge amount of time there, but I have been there many times. Both my kids went to camp there. Um, it's a it's a place that I love and that I wish I got to spend more time in. Um, mostly what I wanted, though, was I loved the idea of them being 4B, of them having an island and having a house on the island and having mm. it be just just them on this place. And I knew that Maine was a place in the early 20th century where one could have bought an island and built a house without being a multimillionaire, right? That that was just something that people people did then. I mean, um, Nancy, who's the, the American mother, does come from a little bit of money, but not like a huge amount of money. But I knew that that was possible. And that that's what I really wanted. So I think that's partly why Maine came to be also because I knew that was a place that that could happen. I'm curious what the research process was like for kind of capturing these different settings for understanding. I know you you mentioned that memoir, but um, just different ways you tried to understand what it would have been like to um, be living these experiences during the war, but also, I guess, beyond because it spans much further. What was your research like? 
So early on, I did a fair bit of research around the Blitz, um, both on both sides of the ocean. Um, I was in London at one point and I did go to the Imperial War Museum, which is wonderful. Um, and there's, you get such a great sense there of what domestic life in London was like during the Blitz. And that was really, really helpful. Um, I, I love looking at photographs and being able to understand place and setting through photographs. So I, I did a lot of kind of internet research, looking at photographs again on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but I, I do love doing research, but I also knew that I would actually never get the book written if I kept doing research. <laughs> so at a certain point, I just had to say, like, I have to stop. And it also, my focus very much is the characters rather than the history. I, the history is obviously very important. It's what what makes the book happen, right? The reason that World War II is going on, and that's the reason that she has to leave. But other than that, I sort of see it running along in the background and the characters really in the foreground. So I just started writing. And then when I would get to a new year, I would kind of do some deep dives to to understand the time, to understand what was important then, to sort of gather some details perhaps that could work um, in the story. And that ended up being a really efficient way, I think, of doing this for me. Um, and then obviously later in the years of writing and drafts, I, I would go back and back and back to do more research. But um, that ended up being being better to just start writing and kind of fill in the gaps as I went. How long would you say the whole process took? Uh, um, <laughs> I know that I had something in the works um, as early as 2008, 2009, because um, I workshopped a chapter then into that the fall of 2009. Um, that chapter is long, long gone. And I wasn't working on it continuously. Um, I would sort of work on it for a while and then think, I can't do this and, and put it away. And then in the middle there from two. 2014 to 2016, I went and got an MFA. And while I was in the MFA, the focus there was on short stories. So I really didn't work on it at all during those two years. But when I got out of the MFA, um, I felt more comfortable. I had, you know, I now had some some training. I understood, I think, a little more about craft and and more comfortable in my skill set. Um, and so that's when it was sort of the fall of 16 that I started a little more seriously working on it. And then, um, but I still wasn't making a lot of headway, I think. Um, and then in the fall of 2018, I took a year-long novel class. There were 12 of us in that class. It was taught by um, the writer Lynn Steger-Strong. And we all wrote novels over the course of that year. And that's when I got it done in this format. Um, that, for me, was so important to have that the structure of that class, to have Lynn waiting for pages to have everyone in the class waiting for pages and then the feedback from everyone. That was huge. And I actually, that class started in September and by March I had a first draft. I mean, that's how oh, wow. amazing that structure. Now, obviously it had been percolating in my brain for years and years. Um, but yeah, that was really, really wonderful. I'm so glad I did that class. I'm not actually sure the book would exist if I didn't take that class. And where was that class through? It was through Catapult, who sadly are no longer doing um, oh. classes. Lynn does teach that class on her own. Um, and a number of other uh, places around the country, Story Studio in Chicago, um, I think the Muse, in, or the... Yeah, um, Grub Street has Grub their Street like, novel incubator class. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I just think it's fascinating to think about um, for different books that um, I'm, it sounds like there were different times where you were ready to kind of throw up your hands. And it's just amazing to think that like, we almost didn't have these characters and this story. And, you know, for anybody listening who is like persevering with a project, um, you know, that to maybe not give up because, you know, look at, look at what you ended up creating. It's so exciting. It's just such a, I mean, it's honestly one of the, my favorite books I think I've, I've read in years. So I just, I just really loved it. And, you know, I'm wondering too, so like you've gotten the first draft and you have, you know, eventually like I'm guessing with that year long class kind of gotten the book where you wanted it to be. What was your experience then in terms of trying to get an agent and a publisher? Was that a quick process, a long process? What was that like? Um, so, yeah, so I took that class and then the following fall, which was the fall of 2019, I did some revisions. And then in the beginning of 2020, um, I started querying agents, which in hindsight, maybe not the best moment before a global pandemic. Um, so <laughs> I sent out my know? first round of queries in February of 2020. And um, I actually didn't hear from many, many people. Um, and that was um, a little devastating, frankly. And it was hard to parse, right? It was hard to know how much of this is pandemic, how much of this is the, you know, my novel, like it was just really right. hard to, to figure out. And I kind of, between that and just what was happening with the pandemic, I just kind of ran away, honestly, from the whole thing. And I didn't, I didn't look at it again. I didn't edit it. I didn't do anything. I didn't send out any more queries until the following fall. So October of 20, um, I kind of grew up a little bit and I sent out another round of queries and I had a better response then, but still nothing panned out. Um, and then in February of 21, I went out again. Um, and this time in that, that round of queries, I included Gail Hockman, who is now my agent. Um, and right away, her assistant asked for, I think, 50 pages. And then a month later, they asked for 100 pages. Um, and then I didn't hear anything for a while. And then I heard that it had been passed on to another agent there who read it and then passed. So I actually thought it was it was over there. And I was so now it's the middle of May, I think, of 21. And I was kind of trying to figure out next steps. Like, should I do I need to revise based on the little bit of feedback I'd gotten from some of the agents who passed, or should I just move on to it? again? I was in that place. So should I just move on to another project? Because, yeah. you know, um, and then on a Monday night, I got an email from Gail, who was the, the agent I had originally queried. And she said that she was reading it and she loved it. And she wanted to know if it was still available. She told me to give her a couple of weeks to finish. And then, um, Two days later, she emailed again and said she finished it and she loved it and she wanted to represent me. So it, it was kind of crazy. I was really not expect, expecting that to happen yeah. at all. Um, and then she did not have a lot of um, changes to be made. I made a few changes. I wrote a new prologue. That was something that I had been thinking about wanting to do for a long time, made some other minor changes, and she sent it out I think the first week in July of 21 and in less than a week, we had a, a preempt offer from Celadon. So it was done wow. in a week. So it was crazy to go from all that time trying to find an agent to then so quickly selling the book. I think that's so important to share though, because 
it could have been, I, I mean, just one less round of queries and putting it in a drawer and like it wouldn't exist. And <laughs> I, I just think that's, um, you know, to just keep going sometimes if you, if you're really um, feeling strong about a project, because um, just, just like a great example of we would be, um, it would just be so sad if this book were not in the world. And it just <laughs> took that, like let you had just took that one person to finally, um, you know, spot the gem, you know, it's, um, but I think it is challenging. Like how long do you keep, keep at it and keep trying? And when do you decide, like, I guess this is the one that goes in the drawer, but um, so good that you kept persevering. And with the production of the book too, I wanted to mention, I just think it has the most stunning cover. I loved the cover so much. And I wondered if you got um, a say in that at all, if it took them a while to get to that cover, what was that like? They actually did the cover very, very early. In fact, I saw the first um, visual for the cover before I'd even received edits from my editor. Oh, wow. Um, I think their philosophy is like to get a cover so that all, right from the start, people have an image, right? People are know what this, this book is going to look like um, is really important to them, which I think is really smart. Um, I really like the cover too. I loved the fact that the woman on the cover is rather timeless and that it could be somebody in 1940, but it could also be somebody in 1977. Um, right. And I like the fact that the woman is looking out at the sea, which obviously the sea is very important, but again, it, it could be somebody in the States. It could be something, somebody in, in England looking towards America. So I, I loved that, that how universal it felt and that it didn't feel yeah. super specific to the story. And yet it could be super specific to the story. Um, yeah, so I thought it's just beautiful. I love that she was barefoot too, because there's so much, especially with all the time in Maine, there's such a, strong presence of like nature and the outdoors and stuff in it too. And yeah, I just thought that was stunning. Well, what has the experience been like being a debut author and kind of gearing up for the gearing up for promotion and having to kind of switch from like writer hat to sort of like marketer hat? What's that been like? Um, it's mostly been really fun. I was really nervous about that because I'm not somebody that um, I don't love like promoting myself um, all that much, but I've actually, it's been really fun and the events have just been amazing. That has been such a joy to be able to talk about the book, um, to be able to meet people who've read the book. I'm starting now to do a number of book clubs and that's really oh, fun. fun to talk to people who've actually got to the end. So there's no, I don't have to worry about spoilers and we can just kind of talk about the characters and the choices oh, they made. Oh, it'd be such a good book club pick. Oh, you're making me want to like convince my book club. Cause I feel like there's so much, there's so much to dive into and like who, who you agree with their choices and who you don't. Oh, sorry, go on. But I'm like, I need to get exactly. my book club to read it. <laughs> um, so that's been just, so much fun. And it's just, it's gone places that I never would have thought it would have gone. You know, it was on the Today Show and it was a GMA buzz pick and it, it's just all sort of amazing. It's somewhat surreal, honestly. Um, this past weekend, I got to go to a festival in Montclair, New Jersey, and I was on a panel with um, a professor of mine from my MFA, Alice Elliott Dark, who's a writer I just love and adore. Her novel Fellowship Point 
just today actually is out in paperback. Um, and then we were, the other person on the panel was Eliza Minot, whose book In the Orchard um, just came out at the end of April. Beautiful, beautiful book. And so, but to be on a panel with the two of them talking about our work and the commonalities and the differences and just the craft of fiction was just such a huge joy. And I kept sort of pinching myself that I was that I was there. It was really wonderful. And that's generally how this is all felt like just a dream come true, really. That's great. And, you know, we mentioned the audiobook as well, and how just phenomenal that is. Did you get to sort of meet with the narrator before they started recording? Or were you involved with that production at all? No, I did get to... Um, choose I had they sent three tapes and so I was able to listen to those and um Els was the one that I liked the best and so that's the one that we went with um and but I was not involved in the production at all no well I highly recommend um people pick that up and it's making me wonder too you know we've kind of been diving into sort of the writing process but do you read in your genre do you read different things um i'm curious if they're kind of all, and along with that are there any books you'd want to recommend to listeners um i mostly read literary fiction um and um in terms of books to recommend um hello beautiful by ann napolitano um is just just wonderful and amazing. And I would highly recommend that. Um, it's, it is everywhere and rightly so it should be everywhere. It's just, it's just fantastic. A book that I just started, um, by Alice Wynn is called In Memoriam. Um, it is sort of historical literary fiction, I would say. And it's two, um, two men who meet in school prior to World War One and then they go into battle. Um, it's just, just gorgeous, beautifully, beautifully rendered. So I would highly recommend that. Um, and then a short story collection by a writer named Andrew Porter called The Disappeared. Um, he just writes beautiful, beautiful sentences, beautiful paragraphs, beautiful stories. Um, every single one of his stories is one of those stories where I read it and then I, I just need to put the book down for a while so I can kind of think about the story before I move on to the next one. It's not a book that you rush through. It's a book that you really savor. So I would highly recommend that as well. well those all sound great. I, I will definitely link to those. Well, I'm wondering if you sort of you're still in the the promotion phase and this just came out, but have you been kind of like percolating on a next topic or started writing something for kind of book two? I'm, I'm trying, I'm having a hard time uh, kind of picking a project. So I have two that I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between um, one of them comes out of, I wrote a number of short stories while I was in my MFA um, that were not connected, but there were some characters that I really loved. And so one of the projects actually takes three characters from three different short stories and I've now connected them. And so I'm, tr I'm working to cr make a novel out of their stories, which is really fun because they're characters that I spent a lot of time with, you know, four or five years ago. And so it almost feels like being back with old friends, like, yeah. um, being with them again and kind of learning more about them as I kind of develop and enrich in their stories, moving them from a short story to a novel length project. So it's really fun. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Well, lastly, I just wonder, there have been so many books lately where I just think, are the right people paying attention because these would make 
such good movies or shows. <laughs> and I'm always kind of curious as I'm reading and thinking that if, if authors have been approached, has anybody like bought the rights or anything for um, adapting Beyond That the Sea? Nobody has bought the rights. Um, I do have an agent um, who has film rights, and so she is working on it. Um, she absolutely loves the book, um, and I know she's been talking to a lot of people. So we'll see. I think it's a, a little bit of a complicated project, perhaps, because you would have to have two different casts, probably, for like the early years and the later years. Um, right. But but I, too, I could see this working really well. I think it 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 sort of lends itself to that kind of an interpretation for sure. It really does. And seeing the different settings on screen and, and just the way it does span the years, I think would be, I don't know. I just think it would be so interesting to see it adapted. So I'm going to cross my fingers on that. I'm excited that there's a film agent. (laughs) Well, Laura, I really hope that listeners go pick up beyond that, the sea and uh, definitely, if anyone is an audiobook listener, uh, you should uh, download the audiobook because it's um, just wonderful. And I'm just so thankful that you stuck with it because um, it's just one of my favorite books now. And I'm still constantly thinking about these characters. And so I'm just so happy it was brought into the world. And I think listeners are going to um, feel the same way once they've spent some time in this world. So congratulations and thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was just a lovely conversation. Such a joy to get to talk to you. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.